Well, well, well. Good morning, church. Oh, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. Man, we um, discover in Scripture that we serve a extraordinary king, uh, a sovereign king, a mighty king, uh, the king actually of kings, the Lord actually of lords. We serve one who literally is creator of all things and is the continual sustainer of all things. And this king that we serve, when we encounter this king, or frankly, when anything that exists encounters this king, the full scope of terror and fear ought to be our response. And yet, this king has communicated to us through his word that his attitude toward us is not one of lording over us with his majesty and power to hold us in our fear, but actually that his attitude toward us is to love us with a love we cannot fathom. And in that love, to, to act toward us with nothing but goodness. And in that goodness, that that goodness would not just be now for our current life, but a goodness that is put in scripture this way, that he will lavish upon us his kindness for all of the ages to come. This is an extraordinary thing. That we, that we sit here and even when we sing uh, the, the emotional uh, words of, oh, how he loves us, just own the fact that your imagination does not have the capacity to fully grasp what you are singing, to fully grasp the extent of his love and goodness toward us. May we serve a great king and a great God who is our friend, who is our brother, who is our father and who loves us with a love greater than we have space in our imagination for. Uh, the last couple of weeks have uh, been a, a quite, quite a ride for me. I uh, don't typically get uh, very sick during any kind of season. I get a cold here and there and uh, got that fun thing called the flu two weeks ago. Um, didn't last for too long, but then coughed my uh, insides out for the last week and a half. And last week literally had no voice. So it is a thrill for me. Uh, to be back here with you guys with most of my voice back. Uh, and so I'm super, super excited. We are uh, in the letter of Hebrews written to a church that is made up either exclusively or primarily uh, of people that are Jewish in their, uh, in their heritage. Um, and and that, that becomes important in terms of the way that the author unpacks some of the stuff that he does in this book. Uh, this is a wondrous book. Uh, that uh, is a, a timely for us and was timely uh, for the recipients of this book during the time that it was written. Uh, in, in particular, one of the things you will discover today as we enter into the passage that we're sp uh, spending time in is that I hope, I believe wholeheartedly, I'm confident of the fact that you and I will leave here with a greater clarity of how good God is toward us, with a greater clarity of how good God is toward us and how much he loves us. And I'm so excited to enter into this space. So just as a quick reminder, because staying in context is so important if we're going to understand scripture rightly. Uh, this is being written uh, in the late 60s AD, 67, 68, 69 AD, somewhere in there. Uh, that's important because it's being written to a church that we therefore, because of the timing, know that they are in the process of experiencing the heightening 
uh, cost of following Jesus in the culture in which they are. Following Jesus in the late 60s, approaching AD 70, became more and more costly. And in AD 70, the temple is destroyed and Nero goes psycho against the church and Christians die terrible deaths for quite some time. And this is approaching that kind of hostility. So you are talking to a church and churches in general, but in this particular case to a church that is beginning to experience the full weight of the cost of following Jesus. And as we will all do when we are experiencing the weight of following Jesus, we will begin to wrestle with how expressive we ought to do uh, or to be in our following of Jesus or whether it's even worth following him at all, right? Whether his way, his truth, his life is one worth buying into as a culture will drive harder and harder to try and demonstrate his truth and his way uh, to be unhelpful. And so this church, we know from this letter, is wrestling, uh, at least people in it, with the idea, should I continue to follow Jesus? Is it worth it considering the cost becoming so high? Relevant to us, isn't it? Because though our cost at this current time, it does not include our lives. You and I are in social networks and workspaces uh, and, and, and cultural spaces and educational spaces where being expressive in our following of Jesus is costly. Right now it's relationally costly. It might cost reputation. Eventually it will become vocationally costly. Uh, it will become culturally costly. And that will increase. And so this book is timely for the church it's being written to. And it's timely for us. So pay close attention. The other thing to remember because of the timing of this letter is that it is being written to a church that the author uh, expects has a clear view of both the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. Though the New Testament is not put together yet as a collective, the letters of the New Testament have now been circulating for years and years. The letters Peter wrote, Paul wrote, John wrote, some of the others, they have been circulating. Uh, and so the church that this author is writing to, you will see by the way that he writes, and in fact, today's passage is a great example of this, he doesn't have to unpack in terrible depth uh, things like the gospel because he's making the assumption they already have a clarity on the gospel. He doesn't have to unpack things of the Old Testament because he makes the assumption that they already have clarity on things of the Old Testament. And in some ways, we are the same as them. Do we have full access to the Old Testament? Do we have full access to the New Testament? Do we have clarity on the gospel? Yes, so though we may not know all of the details, and so we will revisit them for our own clarity's sake, we do have access to all of it, and we do have a clear understanding of the whole gospel because Jesus has come, he has taught, he has lived, died, and risen from the dead, and the apostles, inspired by the Spirit, have written the New Testament, and we have it. So there is nothing we do not have available to us in understanding the intricacies and beauty of the gospel. So we too, like this church, are recipients of an author that is assuming two things, that we're in a culture that's becoming more costly to follow Jesus expressively, and that we understand Old and New Testament enough that he doesn't have to explain everything. What an awesome book for us, isn't it? And then on top of all of that, remember that this book we've said uh, in many ways, because it closes out so much of the New Testament, all we have left is 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, that this is in some ways the letter from God to the church to say, now that I've told you the whole story, these are the things to put into play. These are the things to remember. 
This is the way to live. The way that this author is going to do that and has been doing that is this way. He is going to demonstrate throughout this letter that Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Messiah, our God, our King, is better, is greater than anyone or anything else ever. And he's going to be very specific. He's going to go back through the Old Testament and take the greatest realities of the Old Testament. And he's going to show that Jesus' arrival and life, death, and resurrection and, and, and ongoing uh, expression and revelation through the Spirit is better than all of the Old Testament revelation put together, not disqualifying it, not minimizing it. It's incredibly important. It's just that the fulfillment of it is in Christ. And that's what he's going to do. And then at the end of each section where he says, look, Jesus is greater. He's better. He's going to give us an exhortation, a warning, uh, a sort of a challenge. He's going to say, in light of Jesus and who he is, make sure you live this way. And all of those are going to drive toward one reality that he is trying, the author, to express inspired by the Holy Spirit. However costly it becomes to follow Jesus, it is more costly not to follow him. However costly it becomes to follow Jesus expressively, it is more costly not to. And if we can remember that, then we will follow Jesus even if it costs us and our families our lives our livelihood, our reputations, uh, our likability, whatever comes as a cost, we will follow Jesus because not following Jesus is so insane, so dangerous, so costly, so crazy that there should be nothing that will ever cause you or I to not want to follow Jesus. That is what the author is trying to express over and over again. And as he enters into what we call the warnings, the exhortations, the challenges, the encouragements. He is going to be pretty dramatic. He is going to be urgent. He is going to be serious. Why? Because he wants us to take it seriously because it matters. Now, in the book of Hebrews, remember, if you are the church that is the recipient of this book, they would not have taken a year to work their way through this book. They may have, but what would happen first before they took a year to go through the book? When the book arrived at the church, first Sabbath it arrived, what would they do? Read how much of it? The entire letter. Why? Because it's a letter from someone they know. And it arrived and a messenger shows up and goes, oh my gosh, we got a letter from our friend. And then they're going to read the whole book. So we oftentimes, as we travel slowly through it, we will jump toward the end of the book to read certain things to remind you of the heart of the early part of the book because we won't get to those sections until like September. And, and yet the author's intent was as he traveled through the book to keep our eyes on the heart of God, on the goodness of God, even when hard conversations are being had. Now you may guess already, what passage do you think we're gonna be walking into? Jesus is greater or a warning? A warning. You're right. I'm setting this up. Can you tell? I'm doing lots of work here to say before we step into a warning, we must walk into these warnings with our eyes rightly fixed on God's heart, 
on God's goodness, on why God would do this. And the author of Hebrews does not mince words in reminding us as to why God is doing this so that we do not misinterpret these warnings as a means by which God is setting up uh, a punitive reality or a demanding reality. It is a parent speaking to his children to direct them in the right way. Listen to this. Now, the author of Hebrews will write uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, toward the end, we'll get to it sometime toward the end of the year. He will write this, uh, and he kind of writes this uh, as he approaches the end of all of these giant warnings. He said very, very urgent, very big, sometimes even seemingly scary things. And then he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. What's he saying here? Don't forget that you and I are children of God. So I've, I've just said some hard things and some beautiful things. And in the hard things, you're going, oh my gosh, God seems really mad. And he's like, hold on, hold on. Are you children of God? Are you children of God? Three of you said yes, then six of you said yes. Let's try one more time. Are you children of God? And God is a good father. So why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he sounding or feeling a little overzealous in his like demand that you walk in the right way? And he says it. Look, he says it. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, as children. For what child or son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is the heart of God right here. Uh, You know, as a parent of children, I I oftentimes, as my children go through middle school and high school, uh, I sit down and have conversations with them, sometimes because they are already behaving in a way that's detrimental, and sometimes because I know that they are likely to follow a path because of the realities of the culture they live in, and I want to be preventive. So I'll sit down with them, and I'll, I'll have a hard conversation with them. And I'll say things like, if you keep choosing to do this, or if you're not diligent in this way, do you understand that those patterns are going to become consequential when you're in college or when you're in a job? And then those consequences are going to play out and you're going to lose that job or you're going to be the one laid off because it's easy to lay you off because you have no value to the job space because you're lazy and you're not diligent. And if that happens, then you won't have resources and you can't provide. And if that happens and you can't provide, eventually you lose your house, car and everything else. And when that happens, you lose everything and you walk on the streets dark at night alone forever. Now, is that likely all to happen? No, but what am I doing as a parent? I'm, I'm telling them, listen, this is a big deal. This is a big deal because if it takes its full path, its consequences are dire. And anything between now and that, there are consequential realities. And then when I'm done having these urgent conversations with my kids, Oftentimes, when I see their faces are a bit pale, their eyes are wide, and they think to themselves, dad is much more upset than he should be about this silly little thing that's happening. I say to them, why am I having this conversation with you? Why am I bringing this to your attention? Why am I taking the vision I have as a 50-year-old and the life experience I have as a 50-year-old and the clarity I have as a 50-year-old and bringing it to you like I'm almost mad? And what, what is the answer I'm waiting for them to say? Because you love me. And then they usually say it hesitantly. 
because you love me. They don't really believe it. And I'm like, yes, yes. See, if I didn't, if I didn't care about you, I wouldn't have this conversation with you. I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care about your future. I wouldn't care about your life. I wouldn't care about the consequences. I would just say, listen, I just want to be your little friend. You go do whatever you want and I'm behind you. And then you are going to find yourself in a giant disaster. And I did nothing to save you from that. No, I will not do that. I love you too much. So I'm going to have these hard conversations with you and I'm going to tell you how important they are and I'm going to sound urgent and sound zealous and, and, and be fairly obtuse and say, oh my gosh, it could end up here because I want you to recognize how urgent this actually is because I love you. A good parent loves their children by exhorting them, challenging them, and disciplining them when they are choosing or might choose paths that will end up to be detrimental to them. That is our privilege and our calling. And our Father, God, is good enough to us that he's not going to mince words when it comes to the urgency of us living a life that leads us to light, life, and freedom and not to darkness, death, and bondage. And that's what we're entering into. So in chapter 1, he introduces uh, the reality of the whole book of Hebrews this way. Did God speak to us in the past? Yes. How many ways? Many. Through how many different means? Various. Various. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by a means that is greater than all the others. Who is that? Jesus, Jesus his son. That's right. And then he spends chapter one saying this. Here is King Jesus. This is our king. He is ridiculously great. His capacity is such that he is both creator and sustainer of how many things? Everything. Everything. So when we say he saved you, does he have the capacity to say that and do it? Yes. He is your Messiah. He is God. He is King of Kings. And he is your hope and he is your life. King Jesus is everything. And then after the whole of chapter one, he launches into chapter two with uh, this word. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. That is where we pick up today. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, okay, let's stop there. Um, <clears throat> why? Why do we do this every time? If you've been part of Mosaic, you know. When we encounter a connective word, we always stop. We always stop. But therefore, because of, we always stop. Because, listen to me carefully. The fastest, most guaranteed way to take scripture out of context and misinterpret it is by ignoring the connections between passages and between verses. Scripture is intricately connected, every verse to every verse, every paragraph to every paragraph, every book to every book. And the second you and I ignore the connections, then we are going to experience passages by themselves, unconnected to what came before or what comes after, and we will inevitably misunderstand them, misinterpret them, and be living by a truth that isn't a truth, even though it came from a scripture. And we're not going to do that because we're going to be diligent in understanding the meaning of any one scripture as it connects to what was already said. 
When the author of this book says, therefore, he is now saying what I'm about to say is in direct response to what I've just said. And what I've just said is that King Jesus is bigger, greater, more awesome, incredible, amazing, capable, and wonderful, good, and great than you could ever imagine. He is worthy of you and me and our following, and he is safe, and he is trustworthy, and he is secure. Stick with him. Therefore, Therefore, now in all of chapter one, that we have not had one command yet, one encouragement, one exhortation, one action item that you or I need to do. It was all about who? Jesus and his incredible wonder. And now as chapter two begins, we encounter our first action item where the author says, in light of who Jesus is, therefore something should happen. And is it going to be an action item that we're called to? Let's take a look. Therefore, he says, we, aha. So who's involved in this? If you're a kid that belongs to Jesus, you are just got included in this sentence. That's you, that's me, right? So he says, therefore, uh, God, or therefore, this church. But he didn't say that. He said, therefore, we. we. So oh, it's about us. What are we going to do? Here we go. Therefore, we must. Oh, gosh. There's so many words here that matter. <laughs> Listen, uh, when we use language... There are certain words that are intentionally used to create certain realities. And when you are saying to another human being, you must, what do you mean? You have to. It's non-negotiable. This is a statement that says what I'm saying here or I'm about to say here isn't an opinion you should wrestle with. It isn't a, a, a thought you should decide on. I am not trying to advise you here. I'm telling you. You must do what I'm about to say. This is non-negotiable. Now, that could either be in an authoritative way where it is an authority saying to you, you must do this, or it can be in a zealous way where perhaps a parent or a coach or someone is saying, you must do this because if you choose not to, it's going to be highly consequential. You with me? So it is their heart, their love for you that uses the word must. It's that urgent to them. What this author is about to tell this church that they should do and what the Spirit of God is about to tell us that we should do, how important is he making it? Non-negotiable. He's not asking you to think about it. He's going, you better do it. You better do it. Okay, you must. Okay, so now we've got three words so far. Therefore because of who Jesus is, we, that's us, must do something. What, what must we do? Oh my gosh, here we go. We must pay, oh, wait for it now, wait for it, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Okay, so there's two big words here. You must pay attention. Is that what he said? No, he's close, but there's one extra word in there. Pay much closer attention. So he's comparing it to something, isn't he? He's saying, you once paid attention, didn't you? He's assuming that there was a paying attention of something. And now he's saying, you paid attention, but this time around, you know, you, I, just, I don't want you to just keep paying attention. You must pay much closer attention to what you have now heard, to what you have now encountered. Who do you think the author is referring to that we should pay much closer attention to than the attention we used to pay? Jesus. Jesus. Why would we conclude that? Because of the word, therefore. And chapter one was all about 
Jesus teaching in the last days and being greater than even the angels. And now he's saying you paid real close attention to the other versions of God's revealing himself to you. But now you must pay much closer attention to what is in front of you. Oh, and look look now, watch what he's about to do. He's now going to show us why he is using these big words, not big, but important, like big as in, you know, uh, loud words, must, much closer. Why? Because he says this, look at this. Lest, what does the word lest mean? Uh, It could be unless, but lest typically means because if you don't, something's going to happen. Like avoid this, lest this happens. Watch. It's a kind of a weird word, lest, but I like it. It, it. It's different. Lest we drift away from it. So what he's saying is, because of who Jesus is, being greater than the angels who were the messengers of God before, we, we must pay much closer attention to what we have now heard, what we now understand, lest we drift away from what we've heard. Are you with me so far? What we'll drift away from is what we've heard if we don't pay much closer attention to it. So what he's saying here is that if you don't pay attention to this, might you drift away or will you drift away? Oh, you will. That's what the word lest here means. He's not saying, listen, I would encourage you to pay attention to Jesus whenever you have the ability to do that. Because if you don't, there is a chance you might drift away. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you must pay much closer attention to what Jesus has shown you. Because if you don't, lest you will drift away from what you know to be true. That's going to happen. There is a a quote by uh, D.A. Carson, who is a pastor and author, uh, and and this is what uh, what, what he writes. And and I think this, you'll hear it and it'll resonate right away because it's, it's just true, and it's a scriptural truth throughout. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace driven effort, an effort driven by God's grace, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That is our way. And what the author of Hebrews and the Spirit of God inspiring him saying to us is this. Do you want to drift? Then if you don't want to drift, because if you drift, it doesn't go well. Don't drift. Then you need to pay much closer attention to what Jesus said. Now watch, as though he is, and not as though, this is exactly what he's doing. Uh, He is now going to solidify what he's already said in chapter one for us to bring us back around to fix our eyes on Jesus to remind us that the reason we ought to pay much closer attention so that we won't drift is because Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is safe. Jesus is everything. Look what he says next in this passage, bringing us back to chapter one. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What just happened? Right, you might say. It's actually incredibly simple, and he's just tying back to everything he said in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he said Jesus is greater than the angels and specifically in the context of the angels being the messengers of God in the Old Testament and in the early New Testament to bring about the revelation of God. And their revelation was valid and from God and amazing, but Jesus speaking is greater than them. You with me? That was all of chapter one. Now look what he just said. The angels brought to us God's revelation in the past. How closely did the people pay attention when an angel showed up to bring about some revelation from God? Like three of you got it. Uh, very, very, very much. Listen, let me, let, me, let me put it into context for you, okay? okay? If right now, while I'm preaching, behind me, an angel appears that's like goes through the roof. You just see like his legs and then he, he bends down through the roof and he looks at you and he's holding a giant sword and he's glowing and he has massive, incredible power exuding from him so much so that you feel the heat of the radiance of his light, right? What might you do? You might run, you might scream. You might fall down. You might be, no, I don't know. But it ain't going to be an ordinary moment. You're not going to be like, oh, look, there's an angel. <laughs> How fun is that? Renault's talking. This, You know, Renault's in the middle of his message. Can the angel wait? None of us are going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn around and fall down. And then what's the first thing the angel's going to say to all of us? Likely. Don't, 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 be, don't be afraid. And then we're going to say back to the angel, are you out of your mind? You should look in the mirror and then say that to me again. When an angel brings revelation from God, we pay how close of attention? Very. And the author here is saying, you pay close attention to the angels. And that's important because what they brought was reliable. But I'm telling you to pay closer attention. How much closer? Much closer attention to what Jesus has shown us in his words and in his life. And what we now understand is the fulfillment of all that the angel showed us. Then he goes into this little passage or this little verse that says what the angels brought was reliable and we found it to be righteous and we found it to be true that retribution or judgment coming our way because of what the angels brought made sense. What is he talking about? This is now the author doing what I told you when I started this message, assuming that the audience he's writing to understands Old and New Testament and the historical traditions of the church. There was a tradition in the Jewish culture. And when I say tradition, I don't just mean like it was false. It came from scripture that the law was in part brought to them by the angels. So we, we experienced the coming of the law through the Ten Commandments. Who brought the Ten Commandments to Moses? Like, I, lo I love it. There's like three or four of you. God, I don't know. Is it a trick question? Yes, God did. He was on Mount Sinai. God showed up and he, remember, wrote on the rocks. And then Moses broke him, didn't go well. God did it again. Okay. Were the Ten Commandments the totality of the law? 
No, they were the summary of the law. Where did the rest of the law come from? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, there is an expression there of God bringing the law and part of him bringing the law, it says in there, uh, with the host of the angelic race. And so in Jewish tradition, the law was brought to the people by God in part through his messengers, the angels. So this isn't just talking about random messages the angels brought. What the author here is doing is said, who brought us the law? God did through his angels. And the law became reliable. Is the law reliable? Is the law the display of God's righteousness and perfection? Is the law what we all ought to attain to live by? Is the law justice and rightness and goodness? Yes, so if we are not living by the law, are we unjust, unrighteous, not good? Yes, so when you are not living by the law, is it right to think that judgment ought to be poured out on anything and anyone who doesn't live by the law? Yes, this is basic gospel reality, right? We were lost before Jesus found us because, remember what Paul wrote in Romans? He said, what the law was incapable of doing to save us because of our sinful nature, Christ had to come and do for us. Why was the law incapable? Because it came to show us the righteous way so we could follow it. But because we are sinful, we couldn't follow it. So the law, instead of becoming our savior, it became our judge. It became our schoolmaster. It became our condemnation. We were condemned by the goodness of the law. Was the law bad? Was it reliable? Good. We were the problem and the law became our condemnation. All that is wrapped into that one little sentence. Remember the angels brought us the law and the law ended up doing what? Showing itself reliable and uh, proving to us that we should be consequentially judged by the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. So how on earth were we saved then? If we couldn't escape death, darkness, and bondage for all of eternity because the law only showed us to be unrighteous, how did we escape death, bondage, and and darkness for eternity? Jesus. Now look, he says it. He says it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, And every transgression or disobedience toward the law received a just retribution, judgment. How shall we escape if we now, if you will, I'm putting the word now in there, but if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's what he's saying. Who is your only hope? Your only hope is the rescue that Jesus effected for you. Are you with me? You couldn't even pull it off when you had the reliable law to show you the way. You had everything you needed and you couldn't do it. And then he had to come and rescue you. So question for you. If you are considering not expressively living out your faith for Jesus because it's getting hard in the culture, if you couldn't escape eternal damnation by attaining righteousness and then Jesus gave you eternal life, how on earth do you think you're going to escape eternal uh, death if you abandon Jesus? That's what the author's saying. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Because uh, some of you are like, oh my gosh, if I abandon Jesus, do I lose my salvation? Good news, we're going to be in Hebrews for an entire year, and it gets much scarier than this little warning. <laughs> and we are going to be able to dig into the questions about salvation and the ability to lose salvation, but I will just answer the question for you so that you're not having to wait a couple of months to figure it out. You cannot lose your salvation. 
no matter what on earth you do or don't do, because the author of your faith is Jesus. The finisher of your faith is Jesus. Peter says you are guarded by Jesus. You are kept by Jesus. When you're a child, you can never cease being a child. Yet, what this author is going to keep doing, like any father to any child, is to say, if you choose to walk away from Jesus, even as a prodigal for a season, it is going to be massively consequential. Don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. The cost of following Jesus will never be as high as the cost of not following Jesus. And he is going to say that when we choose not to follow Jesus, we ought to examine whether we were ever a child in the first place. That'll come. Don't worry. Relax. Take a deep breath. For now, we are right here. And this is the preemptive warning that says, if you do this, you won't have to worry about all the other warnings because this one will keep you in a beautiful space. Look what he says next. How then shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the hope that Jesus is? And look, now, now he unpacks it. It was declared at first by the Lord who first showed us the salvation of Jesus. Jesus did. Jesus showed up. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus taught. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven. Who showed us our salvation? Jesus. Who taught us about our salvation? Jesus. Who wrapped the whole Old Testament into the clarities it was meant to point to? Jesus. So what he's saying is first and foremost, how do you know about all this salvation now? By the life and teachings of Jesus, who is our hope? Jesus. And then he says, as though he's like, that'd be enough. But look, and it was attested to us by those who heard who were with Jesus. This is in AD 68. Uh, Peter and uh, James and John and uh, Paul, they're all still around. And guess who they were with? Jesus. And so this author is saying, you all know. Uh, who was with Jesus. You can go talk to them. You've gotten their letters. Uh, you don't just have to buy into the idea that Jesus showed you. There were people with him that watched all this happen and they wrote about it and they talked to us about it and they traveled to all of our churches to say, oh my gosh, you're not gonna believe what Jesus did. And, and, and then as though that's not enough, look what he says next. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So now he's saying, and remember when Jesus was on the planet, did he do things that were absolutely supernatural and extraordinary? Yes. Just like Moses, but better. Yep. Yeah. Whenever God was rescuing his people, he would intervene through signs and wonders and supernatural events. And that was a sign of God's rescuing of a people. And so he's now tying back to the Old Testament. When we were rescued from slavery in Egypt, how did God rescue us? Through a Messiah that he empowered to do incredible things. That's how we knew Moses was who Moses was. Now, the next passage is going to show that Jesus is better than Moses. So we're getting there. But he's just kind of tying them two together. And he said, when Jesus was on the planet to rescue the human race from sin and death, did God show Jesus to be who he was through the miraculous power that Jesus held in his hands and his words? Yes. And the witnesses saw it all. Yes. And Jesus was here. Yes. And he lived it. Yes. And he taught us. Yes. And he died. Yes. And he rose from the dead. Yes. And he ascended. Yes. Are you confused? That's what the author's trying to do. I know I feel very, very zealous, but I'm just kind of expressing the, the zeal of the author. I'm really not mad at you all. This is the urgency by which this author is trying to say, Jesus is our only hope. Don't ever walk away from him. Stay close to him. Now look at this. 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is so crazy because this now puts it into present future. Who has the Holy Spirit after Jesus came and ascended into heaven and gave the Holy Spirit to the apostles? Who else got the Holy Spirit? The church, every follower of Jesus, every child of God, you are sealed as a child of God by the Holy Spirit. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to the church to continue on displaying the gospel. Who has the gifts of the Holy Spirit or a gift or a set of gifts from the Holy Spirit? Who has that? Every child of God. That's in scripture. You have the Holy Spirit. You also have with the Holy Spirit a gift or gifts that he has given you for the building up of the church because when the church is built up and the people that follow Jesus love each other, then other people know we follow Jesus and they'll look to Jesus and come to know him and that is the light pushing back the gates of hell. Right? So he's literally saying, and if you happen to be reading this letter 2,000 years from now, you still have the Holy Spirit and he has still gifted you and there's still stuff going on that God's doing. I mean, really? If you have any doubt that Jesus is worth following, I hope that I'm settling it, says the author. Now, let's jump back for a second because we've now covered the passage. Whew, okay, wow. But uh, we, we do have the start of this passage inviting us into an action item and I want to talk about that for a second because it's a pretty big one. How close of attention were the Old Testament followers of God called to pay to God's word, to God's message, to the message from the angels, from God, to the law? How close were they supposed to pay attention to that? Very close. How do you know? Well, that's written in scripture. So allow me to remind you just of the extraordinary nature of how close they were supposed to pay attention to this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign to your hand. You shall have them as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. How often were the people supposed to pay attention to the word of God? All the stinking time. Like literally, lay down, stand up, walk, sit, sleep, eat, children, doorpost, gate, head, forehead, hands, everywhere. Don't divert for one second from what God has said. That's how much they had to pay attention to this. Listen to what the author uh, of Psalms, uh, several of the Psalms says, Psalm chapter 1. Uh, one of the, the great psalms of what freedom looks like. And he, and he says this, uh, Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What does that leave out? Never. Zero. Day and night. We don't have another third category. What about, what about that, other, that other space? There's no other space. It's either day or it's night. And you ought to be meditating on, on the word. Psalm uh, 119. Um, listen to what he says in Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me, ever with me. I am more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged 
for I kept your precepts, keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules uh, that you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your precepts I get, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How close of attention did the people of the Old Testament pay to the message that they got from God and the angels? Extremely close. So, ladies and gentlemen, the author of Hebrews says to us what? You need to pay just as close attention as they did. No, no, nope, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said you must pay much, not just a little bit, much closer attention than they did. What on earth? How do you even begin to do that? Turns out the Bible tells us. What? Colossians uh, chapter 3. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. Here we go. Chapter 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So where should the word of Christ dwell? In us. How richly? Richly, which means... We need to be in his word. How deeply? Deeply. How often? All the stinking time. But more than us being in his word, where does his word need to be? In us. Folks, look at me for a second. We are a culture and a people that have abandoned the notion of memorizing God's word in large chunks which means it is only accessible to us when we have the time in our busy lives to go sit down and read and then we don't even know what the heck to read. This is part of the slow drift that causes us not to have the word of God constantly second by second governing our hearts and minds. And what the author, uh, Paul of Colossians says is that, dude, listen, lady, listen, all of you kids, listen, adults, listen, all of you listen. The word of God needs to be so deeply embedded in you that you cannot escape it with a thought. And if that is not your story, then you are in danger of drifting. So first and foremost, we must have the word of God dwell richly in us and we must dwell richly in it. And then in this particular passage, he says, when the word of God dwells richly in you and you richly in it, you should gather with other people in which it dwells richly and admonish one another. We cannot experience the fullness of God's word outside of biblical community. It is designed to become rich in us when we are giving it to you and you're giving it to me. We are sharing it. In fact, the author of Hebrews, now you'll start understanding why the author of Hebrews takes these things so seriously. What does he say in Hebrews chapter 10 that we'll get to sometime in September or October? Here we go. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's the entire point of Hebrews. Hold fast to what you know to be true, that Jesus is everything. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as the day approaches. The author of Hebrews says, and Paul, the author of Colossians says this, 
Make sure you're in his word and his word is in you. Make sure you're taking the word that is in you and you being in it and do it together and make sure you don't neglect doing it together because that is how the gospel is preached to you and you preach the gospel to others. We must preach the gospel to ourselves and we must preach the gospel to each other so that we will have the courage to preach the gospel to the world when we live out there expressively with our following of Jesus, despite whatever the cost is. And then finally, we know this. In the book of Galatians and a multitude of other places, Paul writes specifically in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, starting in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so what he's saying is this. If you and I, want to, watch this, pay much closer attention to what Jesus has done and showed us and taught through his word by his spirit. We must be in the word regularly. The word must be in us always. We must be with one another, preaching the word to each other, and we must walk in step with the spirit relationally through the disciplines of the faith. This is not complicated stuff. It's just difficult because we're idiots. Oh, did I say that out loud? It's difficult because we're idiots. You know what I mean by it? I include myself in this. We get so caught up in the insanity of the world that we don't take the time to, to do these things. And then here's what he says. If you don't, that's okay, but you're going to drift. And what the rest of Hebrews is going to say this, the drift starts slow and doesn't seem like a big deal, but it ends in Hebrews chapter six, where we're abandoning the entire thing. Don't ever, 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 ever get anywhere close to that. Stay close to Jesus. And yes, it's going to cost you a great deal, perhaps, depending on when you're born and what culture you're in. But the danger of following Jesus will never, never come close to the danger of abandoning Jesus. So stick with him. I was talking to Lindsay, who um, does all of the, the, the experience you have with our blue shirts and our hospitality and everything else. I mean, hello. Wow. Yes, Lindsay. Let's all go give her a hug. And uh, she was telling me a story this week because she knew the teaching team uh, had traveled through this. And she said, you know, uh, we went to the Bahamas recently, uh, a couple of years ago, not recently, um, and they rented a sailboat so that they could sail between the islands. And this particular sailboat had a, um, an auto compass on it, which means that at any time you could take the sails down, hit the auto compass and the engine of the boat would turn on and the boat would direct its way to wherever you set it to go, avoiding all of the reefs, the shallow parts and the dangers. How fun is that? I mean, I want that boat. You know what I'm saying? So she said, it was awesome because you put on auto and then you could relax and sit back and it stayed on course. But on occasion, you had to take the auto off because either there was a big ship that the boat didn't know was coming and you would have to kind of get around the ship and you didn't want the boat to go straight through the ship. And so you'd take it off auto and then you'd navigate it around the ship. Or sometimes you saw a beautiful area and you wanted to sail around it a little bit and do the sails instead of the little engine. So when you turn the engine off, then the auto doesn't work because the sails aren't directed by the auto compass. So sometimes they would take the, uh, the, the little engine off and they would sail around. And she said, what was fascinating about this boat, and here's the point of this story, because you think you know the point, but you don't. Here's the point of the story. She said, it was fascinating. We would sail around for a while. And then at a certain point, we'd say, okay, it's time to get back on course. We'd take the sails down. We'd push the auto button. And instead of the boat quietly and carefully making its way to course, 
it would make a beeline back to that course like it was in danger. It would make a hard left and go straight back to course and then readjust and then quietly putz along on course like the boat was afraid. You wouldn't think it would do that. You would think if, if I'm here and that was the course that the boat would kind of go, oh, the most efficient way is to quietly make my way back to course. But this boat was like the engine that could. It was like, you push my button, I'm heading back to the path in the fastest, quickest way to get back to that path. And then I'll readjust on course. That's how we should be. That's how we should be. We should be like that little boat that says, man, if I notice for one second that I'm off course, that I'm not memorizing regularly, that I'm not in the word regularly, that I'm not in community regularly, that I'm not walking in the disciplines of the faith regularly, that I have diminished in some intimacy in my relational dynamics with the Spirit of God, that, 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 I, that I'm, I, I don't feel the constant uh, stirring in my mind and my heart of Scripture as it directs my day. If I discover any of that, I ought to pull the sails down super duper fast, push the button and make a beeline back to where I know I need to be, which is in the Word of God and the word of God in me, in biblical community, walking in the spirit through the disciplines of the faith. Because if I keep drifting, eventually I get off the path that is the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and the life of Jesus. And the only thing off that path is death, darkness, and bondage. And it fades quietly. And one day I wake up and I am far gone. And that's not what you want. And that's not what he wants for you. So, friends, family, followers of Jesus, I urge you, as the author of Hebrews does, as the Spirit of God does, dwell richly in God's Word and let God's Word dwell richly in you. Be connected to biblical community at all cost and walk by the Spirit in the disciplines of the faith and let the community help you do that so that we do not drift from the path of light and so that we would be a people that hold fast to our faith as we preach the gospel to ourselves, preach the gospel to each other, and then unapologetically with zeal express our faith in the world, whatever the cost, and preach the gospel to the world so that they too might know the wonder of following King Jesus and being safe because he is safe. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible goodness to us, that you would be willing, <laughs> willing, that you would be willing to speak to us in no uncertain terms through the author of Hebrews on the urgency that it is to make sure that we remain clear on the importance of remembering, of believing, of uh, paying attention to your word, your teachings, your life. God, we want to look to your life and your teachings and the fulfillment of all of scripture through your coming, your life, death, and resurrection, and by your spirit teaching us through the authors of the New Testament and your word. We wanna be a people that pay much closer attention to that than we ever would have to the glory of angels. For you are more glorious. Your word matters more. Your truth is our only truth. Your way is the only way. And your life is life and everything else is death. Empower us, Spirit of God, to take with great seriousness the call you have placed on our life to stay close to you through your word, your community, and your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.